Get ready to start your new morning ritual with our new sponsor, Mudwater. Coffee is one of America's favorite beverages, with more and more people starting their coffee habits every day with a cup of that flavorful anxiety juice. But let's be real. Have you ever heard anyone say, I'm working on getting more coffee into my life? Millions of people complain about the jitters that come from coffee consumption. Our morning coffee rituals can be habit-forming and, for some people, can make getting a good night's sleep almost impossible. And while nearly all of us like the smell, taste, and ritual of our morning coffee, why not explore eliminating the negative aspects of our morning brew? Well, what if your coffee replacement helped induce alertness, not dependency, improve mental capacity and function, improve physical stamina and performance, improve immunity and overall health? Oh, and by the way, it tastes good enough to drink every single day. Meet Mudwater. Mudwater is your fastest growing coffee alternative in the market, consisting of organic ingredients lauded by cultures both old and young for their health and performance benefits. With one-seventh the caffeine of coffee, Mud gives you the natural energy and focus you expect from coffee, but without the jitters and crash. With an organic blend of mushrooms and ingredients like cacao, marsala chai, turmeric, lion's mane, and more, Mud Water offers a beverage like no other. Whether you want to enjoy it hot, cold, as a latte, or however you take your coffee in the morning, Mud Water is zero sugar, zero crash, zero jitter alternative, sure to leave you feeling recharged and refocused. Listen, I'm really excited to have Mud Water as a sponsor here on The Brian Nichols Show because I've been able to see the Mud Water difference for myself, and you can too, so click the link in the show notes to get some mud, support the show, and get your new morning ritual started right with Mud Water. And now, onto the show. Can I pause for a second and, and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on, and our typical lineup includes like homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Well, hey there, folks. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Well, thanks for joining us here on another fun-filled episode. Yes, of course, you're in store for a phenomenal guest, and it's funny how things work uh, and turn out. Uh, So I had this conversation with Jack Kerfoot. Now, Jack is a a noted author in the uh, the space of of climate change, and uh, he's actually the author of a book, Fueling America, uh, an insider's journey. So Jack uh, is not just an insider, he's also a scientist, uh, he's an energy executive, um, and he started his professional career in the industry, uh, in the energy industry back in the 70s, when America was originally paralyzed by an energy crisis. Well, fast forward, here we are in 2021, we're watching Texas right now go through an energy crisis of their own, brought on by uh, that of a natural disaster, in this case, a blizzard, uh, an ice that, that completely crippled the entire Texas region. So right now, the idea of American energy independence, be that from uh, which you see is one of the main arguments looking, well, should we be doing renewable energy? Should we be doing fossil fuels? Jack takes an approach that I think is much more level-headed. Let the market decide, and the market is deciding in this case, uh, looking at alternative renewable, uh, and in some cases, alternative forms of energy. So a great conversation, very topical. Um, so with that being said, onto the show, Jack Kerfoot here on The Brian Nichols Show. Brian, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Jack, thank you so much for joining the show. Jack, you are the uh, author of Fueling America, an insider's journey. 
And uh, we're looking at right now, obviously, climate change. That is the topic of conversation. And I think right now, too often than not, the topic of conversation, when it does uh, center around climate change, folks get a little antsy. They, they seem to uh, dig their heels in in one preconceived notion over the other. So I think it is good to, again, continue the conversation about uh, climate change today. But first, let's introduce yourself, Jack, to the Brian Nichols Show audience. Who are you? And uh, what got you into uh, the topic that is uh, anthropogenic climate change? Well, uh, I was, grew up in Oklahoma, actually, Tulsa, which when I grew up was the oil capital of the world. And when I came back from university, uh, from Vietnam War, I started uh, school at the University of Oklahoma. And I graduated in 1976. And people have to re- look back in their history books, but in 1973, there was an oil embargo. And at that time, there were lines literally miles to get to a gas station to buy just a few gallons of gasoline. So when I graduated, uh, I thought this was a way that I could serve my country, uh, help find the fuel, energy to keep us uh, our economy going, because at that time, our economy was devastated. Interest rates were over 18 percent, and we were really concerned how we could keep our industry and keep our jobs uh, for many of the the manufacturing in our country. So I went to work uh, for Mobile Oil in Denver. And that took me around the world. Um, so I have worked for Wildcatters, I've worked for uh, sheiks, I've worked for potentates, I've worked for worked with ministers, bureaucrats, uh, and heads of state around the world to try and address different energy problems. Um, in 2006, I had an opportunity to meet and have dinner with uh, T. Boone Pickens, who uh, was an oil man as well. But T. Boone was going into wind energy. And so we had a very long and interesting discussion about why the importance and the economic advantages of moving to wind energy. Uh, and so that helped me to understand the economics of this because it's all, we can talk about climate change, but as a scientist, we have to recognize there is uncertainty. So when we talk, some people talk about on this date and this month and this year, the world will end. Well. Science is not that exact. We can come up with models and we come up with theories and we notice trends, but the precision that some people like to talk about quite candidly is not there. We look at trends as scientists and my background, again, is geophysics. So that helped me understand that. uh, And from that perspective, helped me understand the shifting and the change in renewable energy in the United States. In 2005, oil prices hit uh, $60 a barrel, and they were thought they would go higher. And actually, they hit $100 a barrel two years later. And so the federal government developed a bipartisan bill to provide tax incentives for nuclear, for oil and gas, and for renewable energy to try and develop more energy resources in our country for energy security. Uh, the move to, re- to nuclear really did not materialize. Oil and gas, it actually set up a technology development called hydraulic fracturing or fracking. uh, And that turned our uh, continued decline in oil and gas production from a decline to a plateau and then actually to an increase. And in the renewable energy side, that started a huge transition in the development of new technology in wind and solar. In 2005, 2006, the average power capacity for a wind turbine was about one megawatt. And today we're seeing outputs from some of the major offshore wind wind turbines to be 14 megawatts. So 2006, 51% of our power 
Electrical power in the United States was from coal. Uh, and about five, four or five percent was renewable energy, mostly hydro at that time. Today, where we are is coal has dropped down to about 21, 22 percent, and renewable energy is now over 24 uh, percent. And the reason for that, it's about the economics, because the cheapest form of power, those incentives for renewables basically are, are scheduled to drop off and end uh, at the end of this year. And so the whole idea was to make renewable energy provide an incentive for technology development, which occurred, and that's driven down the cost of power from renewable energy. The cheapest form of power right now without any subsidies is actually onshore wind in the U.S. at about 5.2 cents per kilowatt hour. The average price of electricity in the U.S. is about 13.3 cents per kilowatt hour. So it is by far the cheapest. Next is solar followed by uh, hydro, and then followed by natural gas. So we have to recognize the economics are there, and that's what's driven the utilities to make the move to renewable energy. It's interesting. My my day job, I'm a sales executive in the technology industry, and we focus obviously on the advent of the things we're using right now, right? The uh, the social or social media, the uh, the the video conferencing, the um you know the connecting multiple locations over massive geographic different uh, distances, and and it's interesting because when you do have more technology, as it does increase over time, you do see the efficiencies increase. So the 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 point you are making, it is interesting to see. That I in this is one of the common arguments I did here against renewables is that well they're just not efficient enough they're not able to meet the the production needs that we currently have in place from the the existing coal or natural gas um, you know production facilities we have so I mean with that being said now to your point we are starting to see a flip and and I'm curious you you mentioned that a lot of this was due to the government investing in these areas in renewables to to help basically get that first domino going it, it, would you say it would also be fair to say that that wouldn't have happened were it not for the government or was the market already heading that way before the government kind of made that initial dive in? I, I think what you saw, and again, we have to recognize when we talk about energy by, in the U.S., it's really by state by state. Mm. Uh, people like uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez hasn't quite grasped that concept. Uh, that concept. Uh, so each state has its own public utility corporation. And so when the federal government offered tax credits, the states that had a very efficient grid system, let's say like the state, was well positioned to take advantage of that. So in the state of Texas, they're the only state that actually owns their own grid system, the, the high voltage grid system. So you can go to the ECOT uh, nonprofit group, which is set up to operate this, and they have over 40,000 miles of high uh, volume power lines across the state wow. and say, I'd like to build a wind farm. And they can say, great, you can build it. We'd recommend you build it here, 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 and here. Uh, and we can say your tying capacity will this will be this, and this will be your typical permitting that you need to go through. And then they also will include the permitting for the federal because any type of permitting includes federal as well as state. So their cycle time for permitting and getting that whole process is anywhere from six to 18 months. So they, that short cycle time is very short. So then that company can simply go uh, to a utility and say, look, I have the expertise and I'm I would like to build this. And they will say contingent on financing. 
we will sign a 15 or a 20 year power purchase agreement at a certain price. So then they take that power purchase agreement and go to the bank. And the bank says, based on your expertise and your history, we will or will not lend you this money. So that's the key process to this. And to be honest, it's very, very similar to how oil and gas companies went about getting funding from the banks to invest in fracking or oil and gas opportunities in Texas, Oklahoma, or wherever it was in the United States. One of the things that you, you brought up that I was interested in, Jack, and it is this idea almost of, and I'm seeing this across the board as I'm having these conversations, there is an appeal, be it intentional or not, almost to federalism, because this idea of this one-size-fits-all approach to governance, it, I think a lot of people are starting to wake up, whether they're you know on the left or the right, and they're just saying, should should it be that way? Should, should we really have it where the entire country is flipping from one side to the other based on one election every four years? And the policies that we're going to be dictating on, 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 you know, the federal level, you know, should that be changing so quickly? And I'm, I'm curious your thoughts here on the XL pipeline, because you look right now, we're recording on the 4th of February and uh, President Biden just went through uh, in his executive orders and rescinded the, uh, the XL pipeline. And that's something that I know there's an instant reaction from folks on the, the right. Um, you know, this is the, the worst thing ever. I'm curious, Jack, obviously you have years of experience in the industry. Kind of what's your, your insight? view on this uh, ending the XL pipeline? Well, first of all, I think we first of all have to remind people that no uh, commodity, whether it's gold, oil, gas, or coal, is renewable. There's a finite supply that's there. So, and for that reason, that's why we've seen oil at over $100 a barrel, and we've seen it as low as $8 a barrel from that standpoint. Now, the idea of the XL pipeline was it's tied into a lot of politics as well uh, as a way to try and develop trade with um, Canada from that standpoint. And what I find ironic is we have Premier Trudeau, who has this, I am so green, I absolutely support renewable energy. But then there's the small but. I need to generate revenue for my economy uh, because our tax rates for businesses and for the individual are so much higher up here. So you have a, a province like Alberta that is rich in oil and natural gas, and they are restricted because they cannot build a pipeline to the West through British Columbia because British Columbia refuses to allow them to do that. And they can't build it to the East because the economics are not there. So their best economic option is to build a pipeline down to where the refineries are in the U.S. from that standpoint. So well, I'm going to answer the question slightly differently. What people don't realize when they talk about Biden's uh, restrictions on federal lands for oil and gas is he's just changed the dynamic for oil and gas production and consumption around the world. The U.S. will go from a major exporter, as we are exporting L, uh, gas right now, as liquefied natural gas, and oil right now, into, once again, a net consumer. So when that happens, we will take out a major supply source around the world and in return turn us into a net importer. That will, with the drop in the price of oil that we've seen with COVID and before that, what we are going to see now is no oil and gas exploration is virtually anywhere in the world. So in another two to three years, we will expect to see the oil price to dramatically increase. British Petroleum projects that by 2030, 
oil will be at $30 a barrel. Like, sorry, $100 a barrel. So if you think about that, that's going to change the dynamics. Now, the move to renewables, my comment would be, that's how you achieve our country to get to be energy independent. We won't be renewable, uh, relying on the import of any gas or oil from that standpoint. So from an energy uh, security standpoint, that's another advantage of renewables. But as to the the pipeline, my comment would be what has concerned me is I've seen policies put in place to allow it to move forward. And then political issues have come along and they have flipped that to be a roadblock. And so for business, that is absolutely the worst thing you can have. If there's a clear policy that says, no, you're not going to get a permitting for that, that's fine. But let's stand on that based on logical reasons. But we're not doing logic right now. We're doing politics. Oh, goodness. It's everywhere. And and we're seeing it especially right now. I, I think something happened with, with Trump being president that it broke a lot of people. And people just started to go into this. It has to be one side versus the other. There can be no real, you know, common ground or at least, you know, the adults at the table having an intelligent conversation. And then you add it to the topics that are really important. You start talking about topics like climate change or, or how we can at the very least impact you know, or mitigate our impact that is on the environment, you know, at the very least conservation. I'm, I'm all about conservation. I mean, my goodness, my dad was the president for the New York state soil and water conservation districts back, you know, in the, in the early two thousands. Like, you know, this is something that I think anybody out there would be like, yeah, we're on board with, with protecting the environment, but also to the point that, you know, we, we do have an economic incentive here, right. To, to try and I think, get America to a more independent uh, position. Now, you're going to hear a lot of folks out there in the more free market world who are going to say, but Jack, should we be doing this through the realm of government subsidies? Is there a way we can do this without the government helping? What would you say to those folks? Well, that's what the initial idea of the tax credits were for renewable energy and also for the fracking from that standpoint. But those tax credits were phased out and will eliminate it in this year. So their desired goal to improve technology and improve another source of energy in our country was successful. That worked. It didn't work with nuclear, which is now very high. Uh, and the attempts with coal have failed, but the reason coal has failed quite candidly is the cost of transportation. Rail, the cost of uh, transport of coal has more than doubled over the last five or six years. And the other factor people have to realize is there are four grades of coal. And the highest quality coal, anthracite, has been virtually mined out in the United States and is being virtually mined out around the world. So it takes more and more of lower grade coal to generate power. So now with the increased transportation costs from 5 or $6 a ton to $12 a ton to $18 a ton to ship that coal, and now it takes more and more, that's why the cost to generate power from coal is two to three or more times higher than renewable energy from that standpoint. Mm -hmm. So again, it's about supply and demand, but it's important to have the discussions to understand that for every act, there's a reaction. And so we need to understand the potential range of outcomes that can occur. And that, unfortunately, we don't seem to have much in our discussions on different topics. Oh, goodness, to say the least. So let's talk about nu nuclear energy then, because I'm curious, when you look at nuclear energy, 
I hear a lot of folks also have some instant gut reaction. You, you see people instantly point to Fukushima or they'll point to um, Chernobyl as the, the top disasters we can point to. And I hear folks out there who will, in support of nuclear energy, say, but it's one of the most efficient forms of energy. It's one of the most clean forms of energy. So why wasn't there... I guess, an adoption of, of nuclear energy as much as there was for the other renewable energies out there during this uh, tax credit phase? Well, I think it's important to recognize that the U.S. has the best record as far as operations of nuclear power plants in the world. And the Atomic Energy Commission, any time that there is a nuclear disaster around the world, they go out and do an in-depth analysis to try and understand what changes need to be put in place. That's good. Now, the downside of that is that it creates new uh, steps and procedures and safety procedures that typically get implemented. So what we have, and this is what people don't realize, is to build a nuclear power plant today, let's say of 1,500 to 2,500 megawatts, uh, is typically seven to nine, potentially $10 billion, which is a large chunk of change. And with the permitting processes in place, to from the time that you propose it to the time that you can actually break ground, you typically will be waiting 15 years. Uh, that is a large time to uh, tie up capital for that long period of time. And that's why you've had companies like Westinghouse actually went into bankruptcy from the development of, of renewable energy projects. And then at the end of that time, when the plan is ready to close, Nuclear power plants are certified for 40 years. They can get an additional 20-year extension, but to date, no plant has gone beyond 60 years. So at the end of the time, the plant is closed down. And what happens is there's about a six to eight billion dollar uh, capital expenditure to close it down. And then there is the uh, disposal of the nuclear waste, which is typically handled by the federal government. And there are no studies, at least that I've found, that will talk about that. So from a cost standpoint, dollars per, uh, let's say, cents per kilowatt hour, it is more expensive than coal. Now, the good news is it generates virtually no greenhouse gas emissions. But what we have to recognize is when we have people talk about the you know, Green New Deal, like the one senator in the state of Massachusetts, that uh, and they also would be quite happily uh, throw out nuclear as well. Well, let's take a look at the state of Massachusetts. They've put a plan to achieve 100% renewable energy by 2045. However, what they also decided to do before they would achieve that goal is to do away and close down the nuclear power plants. So when they did that, they are now at about 85% of their power is from natural gas, which is a fossil fuel that generates greenhouse gas emissions. And their greenhouse gas emissions have actually increased over the last five years. They have also said, we are going to be one of the buyers of offshore wind off the East Coast. As, uh, offshore wind farms are being built from Maine all the way down to North Carolina. But what they haven't quite understood yet. That sounds good, but the problem is when you put all your power plants in one area, if you have a major storm, then what that means is 
those will be shut down. Anything offshore, whether it's an offshore production platform or an offshore wind farm that you see, you know, well, a couple in the US, but most of us in Europe and off of Asia, when a major hurricane comes through or a major storm, they basically have to secure them. They can't operate during, depending on the severity of them. So what that tells you is they haven't thought through their entire renewable energy program. Unlike a state, let's say like Maine, that says we want diversification of renewable energy types. So we want solar, we want hydro, we want renewables from that standpoint as well. And they are making exceptional progress and they're about 85% renewable right now. And they expect that they will be 100% within four or five years. And what they plan to be is providing selling excess power to states like New York uh, and Massachusetts in the Northeast because they'll become one of these new green energy centers. Wow, that's exciting. That's that's pretty cool. So the phone's ringing, Jack, and it's President Joe Biden. He's calling and he's saying, uh, I have a new uh, position here at the Environmentalism Czar. And Jack, you're, you're tapped to be the new Environmentalism Czar. So you get a magic wand, Jack. You, you have four years. What would be the top priorities of a Jack Kerfoot administration, if you will, um, as the environmentalism czar? And how would the country look differently at the end of those four years versus where we are today? Well, to first of all, I would try and reach out to all the climate change skeptics and ask them one simple question. Do you like to save money? And I haven't had anyone say no to that yet. The second thing we need to look at is we have to recognize that in the 1890s, the United States went from wood as the primary fuel source to coal. So we had new energy hubs develop in Kentucky and West Virginia. And in 1951, oil passed coal. And so primarily because of the automobile. So Texas and Oklahoma became the energy hubs. And now we're gonna be developing new infrastructure uh, or new energy centers like the Pacific Northwest, where I live, down in the Texas and Oklahoma, where those major power uh, wind and solar are off the East Coast. Then well, with the next question is, we've got the resources, how do we remove the barriers, the federal barriers and the state barriers to let this happen, to let the economics happen and to drive down our costs and to make our country energy independent from that standpoint. Part of that more than likely will look at uh, perhaps upgrading uh, federally owned uh, power transmission lines like the TVA, Tennessee Valley Authority, or where I live, the Bonneville Power Authority, which has a power line that sells power down to Southern California, uh, all the way down. It was built in the 1970s from that standpoint. So we'll look at some investment at the federal level, but most of it is removing barriers for the development of new renewable energy and recognizing that we have to be logical and cost effective because if we can drive down our power, we'll make our products that we manufacture more cost effective, we'll create more jobs, and we will see a rebound in growth that we haven't seen in quite some time. Jack Kerfoot, you have a an awesome uh, blog there, our energy conundrum over at Jack, uh, jackkerfoot.com. Also, you're the author of Fueling America, an Insider's Journey. So what would folks be able to expect when they go ahead and start, uh, I guess, uh, ripping through that page turner? Well, what they'll expect, what they will find is someone that decided after 40 years in the energy industry to write a book to explain about the evolution of energy in our country and give you some very unique insights relative to uh, the missteps that we have in our country, but also around the world in trying to understand the complexities of energy. 
with a few, uh, hopefully, humorous anecdotes as well. <laughs> it's important, I think, for us to uh, to be leaders, right? Especially on this topic, because we we especially my audience uh, focuses a lot on you know libertarian solutions, more pro liberty, free market solutions, and and with that, you know, when we're looking at these problems in in the marketplace, where a lot of people are currently at being climate change, we have to be the ones now offering solutions. And if we want to see the right solutions in the marketplace. Well, guess what, folks? We got to be the ones offering those solutions to begin with. So, uh, Jack Kerfoot, thank you for all you're doing, helping uh, raise up the awareness. And where can folks go ahead and stay up to date with all you're doing? Well, again, at my website, uh, www.jackkerfoot.com. That's where I post my blogs and also uh, interviews for, like this program will be on there, uh, as well as the television appearances that I have. Um, and also, uh, from that standpoint, that's the best way. And there's also a link there. You can go on to Amazon and get the book or, uh, from that standpoint, a digital copy as well. So that's a good starting point. Fantastic. Well, how about this? I'll make it easy for folks. I'll include the link to jackkerfoot.com in the show notes. Or folks, you can go ahead and just search it yourself, jackkerfoot.com. Jack, thank you so much for joining the Brian Nichols Show. It's an absolute pleasure and definitely an important topic. We'll make sure we have it back on in the future to discuss this in uh, all the, the importance that it deserves. Thank you very much, Brian. Let's sell liberty and look good doing it with Proud Libertarian. Folks, when we're selling liberty, we have to start things off by piquing interest. And what better way to pique some interest than by rocking some amazing apparel from Proud Libertarian. Personally, I'm a huge fan of their Do Good Recklessly t-shirt, but there's more than t-shirts to find from awesome taxationist theft snapbacks to the killer Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death hoodies. Proud Libertarian has all the libertarian swag you need. And guess what? Brian Nichols Show audience members can rock the latest libertarian swag and save some cash on every single order. All you have to do, use code TBNS at checkout and you'll get 10% off your entire cart at checkout. That's right. Each time you order, use code TBNS and you'll instantly get 10% off your entire order. Listen, I am super excited to have Proud Libertarian here as a sponsor of the Brian Nichols Show. So do me a favor, head over there to Proud Libertarian, place your order today, use code TBNS at checkout, save 10% on your order and help support libertarian entrepreneurs today. Alrighty, folks, that's going to wrap up my conversation with Jack Kerfoot. I, I think it's a fantastic conversation and one that not only is a conversation we need to be having and we've been having here on The Brian Nichols Show, but now uh, in, in the point that Jack's pointing, how do we actually get these new solutions into action? So thank you, Jack, for joining The Brian Nichols Show. And uh, thank you, folks, for, for also joining us here on today's episode. This is an important episode, so I'm going to ask you to go ahead, share with five family members, friends, whoever it may be, uh, that you think could hear today's message and be like, oh, I can take some action items here. I can, you know, start to, to change my perspective on the way I think about things. I challenge you to go ahead, share today's episode. And while you're, uh, you know, going ahead and, and getting involved, well, I'm going to ask you to do me another favor. Go ahead and give us a five-star rating and review if you've not had the chance yet. That's all we ask for you here at The Brian Nichols Show. We charge you nothing to listen to three phenomenal conversations with three amazing guests every single week, except for five minutes of your time to head over there. Five-star rating and review. Tell folks why you have become a long-time subscriber or a new subscriber here to The Brian Nichols Show. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with me and just go ahead and take a, a screenshot of that review, send it my way so I can make sure I don't miss it, well, go ahead and uh, tag me at bnicholsliberty. You can find me Twitter, Facebook, Minds.com, and Parlor.com. Yes, at bnicholsliberty. Or go ahead and email me, brian at brian at 
Com. Coming up here on Wednesday, we are joined by Olivia Rondo, and she has joined the show to discuss uh, all that in the culture. How do we reach people outside of our traditional echo chambers, be that in the libertarian echo chambers, Republican echo chambers, or in, in our own kind of circles of influences? How do we reach people outside of our traditional um, means of conversation? How do we reach people that we normally wouldn't talk to uh, in a great conversation, especially with Olivia being so young and up and coming, and being able to really be, I think, a great uh, spokesperson for for a new Gen Z uh, definitely could be taking the reins here uh, in the next, you know, 10, 15 years, folks. So it's, it's important that we start to identify those thought leaders we can look to uh, and and really try to, to learn how we can best engage with uh, the folks that honestly are going to be leading the, uh, the the national discourse in the, in the very near future. So a great conversation with Olivia. So if you guys want to make sure to not miss that episode, again, head over there, hit subscribe over on your favorite podcast catcher. But with that being said, thank you folks for joining us here on the show today. With that being said, it's Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Jack or Foot. We'll see you Wednesday. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. Audio production for The Brian Nichols Show is brought to you by DB Podcast Audio. Learn more by emailing inquiries to william at dbpodaudio.com.